What you believe about Jesus will change everything you know about yourself, your world, your destiny. Welcome to our series on the Gospel of Mark, Son of God. Before we get started this morning, we have a special, special thing to celebrate today. Our drummer, Mark Nash, has graduated Rochester Institute of Technology with a bachelor's and a master's in computer science. Mark, congratulations to you on a huge accomplishment. Make sure that you send Mark a message on Facebook where he never goes and and say hello to him. Uh, If you're watching online, make sure to send your congratulations to him. That is a huge, huge accomplishment to have that finished. We're excited for the future plans uh, that God has for you, and we'll be praying for you as you begin to walk in that journey. So blessings and congratulations again. Let's pray as we get into God's word this morning, shall we? Lord Jesus, as we open your word, Father, as we open your truth, may we be open to its truth. We ask for your Holy Spirit to be with us. We ask that you would speak, that you would teach, and that you would transform. Would you comfort those that need comforting? Would you challenge those who need challenging? And as we hear your word, may we be transformed to be like Jesus and inspired to follow him, I pray in his name. Amen. Well, Christmas is almost here, right? You've got almost got all of your shopping done. Raise your hands if you've got that done. Raise your hands if you've got a, just one or two or 20 more things to buy. <laughs> just a couple of things, sure. Um, That rush is something that we all anticipate and kind of plan for and work around uh, all of this Christmas season. But there's so many things that have to happen in order for a successful Christmas uh, moment to occur. And let's face it, sometimes those things don't always go as planned, right? So to you, what comes to mind when you think of a Christmas catastrophe? What comes to mind? If we had time, I would love to dialogue with you. We'd uh, uh, put Facebook up and the live stream up so that we could see chat on the screen, and we'll hopefully be able to do that uh, in the future and have some dialogue and be able to ask some questions and hear some responses and things like that. Uh, but for the sake of time, here's some of the things that I thought of that would just think of this is automatically a Christmas disaster. The one would be is that the food didn't turn out the way that you expected, right? For, uh, for us growing up in Canada, uh, you would have another turkey because we had had Thanksgiving back at the beginning of October uh, around Columbus Day. And so by that time, you kind of, you know, you could eat turkey again. It's not as short as just four weeks uh, or three weeks or two weeks, depending on how much turkey leftovers you had. And so uh, the turkey, you would want it to be just perfect. And if it was undercooked, oh, it's a disaster, If it's overcooked, if it's dry, it's like right out of the movie Christmas Vacation where you cut into the turkey and it just explodes in a puff of air and it's gone. For here, you know, the the roast that you have going, undercooked, overcooked, something's wrong with the food and it just, oh, everything would have been better if it had been for for the food. Some people, a Christmas catastrophe is actually a little bit more serious. For some people, there's a, You know, the fact that spending time with family for that long of a period can really be draining. It can be exhausting because of differences in all sorts of social spheres, politically, economically, uh, life experience, and everybody wanting to say this is why they're right. Sometimes people just get on each other's nerves. That's the blessing of families to some way to help us grow, uh, to be more like God and to to practice our faith in fear and trembling in some ways. Uh, But those moments can be pretty tiring. For me, I think the the thing that is a Christmas catastrophe is purchasing a gift for someone, having them open it, and then discovering 
It doesn't work. Discovering it doesn't work. Um, some family members of mine sent a Christmas gift to me because, uh, you know, they're, we're not going home for Christmas. Many of you are not uh, going home for Christmas or family's not coming in the way you would normally do. So everybody's shipping everybody's presents to each other. And the one thing that was kind of on my Christmas list was a pour-over coffee maker. Uh, and it, it's glass. And, you know, as I picked up the box and I went, oh, it has my name on it. I hope it's for me. And I kind of went like this to maybe figure out what it was, right? Because I'm unsanctified. And I shook it a little bit. And you could just hear, like it was just shards of glass everywhere. And I went, actually, I kind of hope this is for someone else. (laughs) But we opened it and discovered it had broken. It obviously wasn't going to work. Back when I was growing up, that feeling of it's not going to work all centered around This phrase, batteries not included. Batteries not included was a legal phrase that was uh, adopted and created by toy companies because they didn't want to ship batteries and have them explode and ruin the toy. And they didn't want to ship batteries that would increase the weight or increase the size of the packaging and be more of a cost to them. We, you know, I grew up in the era where some of these toys took C batteries, D batteries, car batteries, right? And so you you wanted to have to uh, have the person giving the gift go out and get those batteries for them. And it was the worst feeling as the giver to give a gift that was battery operated and then realize you had forgotten to buy batteries for them. And to watch the, the child's face, mine, go, what a great toy. I hope I can use it someday. Right? Was just, was just obviously painful to people. And so you'd spend the next hour trying to scrounge batteries from remotes and other toys, maybe portable stereos so you could get the bigger batteries and you'd pull those out. And of course, they had been in there for decades, so they had about 5% juice left. And you'd plug them in and you'd play with the toy for about four minutes and then it would shut down and you'd have to wait until you could go to the gas station or the grocery store and buy batteries at 30 bucks a pop because they know that people forget to buy the batteries. That was a Christmas catastrophe. For other people, it's, you know, you buy the wrong book. You you buy the wrong video game or you buy an old video game. You know, grandma and grandpa are told, you know, Junior loves this video game. And so they go out and they find the sale version of the one that was released 15 years ago in the series for a console or a PC that doesn't even exist anymore. And they go and they get them this gift and the child is forced to pretend that they really want it. And then parents will go and try and exchange it with the grandparents because it's just hard to do that. And of course, movies now today, you don't know what movies people have purchased if they want to go and purchase uh, a movie for someone, a a fan favorite, but they've already got three different copies of it. They've got a DVD, they've got a Blu-ray, and they've got an Ultra 4K version, all streamed online. So gift cards have become the gift that we think works in every situation. But do they work in every situation? No, you buy a gift card for a store that closes the day after Christmas. (laughs) Or you buy the gift card that is universal. It can be used anywhere, so you think. But then the, the person doesn't use the gift right away, and all of a sudden there's some kind of inactivity fee that gets charged, and the money goes down and down and down because you didn't know that there was a time limit or an expiration date. Christmas catastrophes. Some are serious. Some are more comical. But when Christmas doesn't work as expected, it ruins the moment. Last few weeks, we've been talking about the nature of the kingdom of God and how it works and why we should be faithful and encouraged to share God's truth As we follow the king, we learned that God's word, God's word shapes and shakes the world. And we learned that God's word shapes and shakes the world because it is a light. It works in us. It works through us to demonstrate a better way to live. That this little light of 
hours of mine doesn't actually have to be so little. And so Jesus has been teaching those who want to listen that we are to be involved in God's kingdom and our part is to share God's word with others in word and deed. That's what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. But it's not the only person at work in the part of God. There's a lot of unanswered questions in just what Jesus has taught, right? What's God's part? What's God's role in all of this? What's He doing while we're sharing His word, His truth with other people? What's He up to? Will it work as expected? Let's face it, sometimes we share God's word and it doesn't work as expected. It goes wrong. There's a catastrophe. It feels like the batteries weren't included. So where's God? What's he up to? What's he doing? And Jesus thankfully shares with us two things about the kingdom of God that reveals what God is doing as part of his kingdom work. If you have a Bible, turn with me in them to Mark chapter 4. We're going to be starting at verse 26. Uh, If you're watching Uh, online or you didn't bring a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to grab one, buy one, because it's a great place to take notes when you're reading them in the future. But we are going to have the verses on the screen for you. Turn with me to Mark chapter 4. Because we know it's working, first of all, because growth is happening in a way that, well, we just don't quite see. And Jesus says in verse 26, He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. And as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Jesus goes back to his his farming analogy. The sowing the seed analogy. That once the seed is sown, your job is done. And the farmer's job then is to wait until the harvest. He doesn't see all of the grain growing. He's not able to explain it and how specifically each part happens at each moment. He just knows when it's time for the harvest. And even in our scientific era today, We're able to make far better predictions about what's going to happen in the growth cycle of crops if we do certain things, but we still not fully control that kind of growth. And the kingdom is the same way. As we sow the seed of God's truth, then there's a natural growth that begins to happen, but it's an unseen type of a growth. It's an unseen type of response. And we might think that because we don't see it, that there must not be nothing happening. Jesus says that's actually the farthest from the truth. There's something happening that God is doing. Later on in the scriptures, we would read and we would hear from Jesus in the Gospel of John that the Holy Spirit would come when Jesus would leave them. And the Holy Spirit's role in the world was to open people's hearts and minds to help convict them of sin, to help open them to God's truth of the gospel. And later on, Paul would be in a church uh, in a city called Corinth. It was a rough church. This church actually had favorite speakers and favorite preachers. Well, actually, that's kind of like today. There are those of us who have favorite musical artists in, the, in Christianity, favorite speakers, fav, favorite preachers, favorite kinds of churches. But they had taken it in Corinth. They had taken it to such an unhealthy position that they were saying, you have to be a fan of whom I am a fan of. You, if I'm a fan of this person, and if you're not a fan of this, this speaker or this uh, Christian celebrity, so to speak, then clearly you're not as developed in the kingdom as I am. You're not as spiritual. And Paul crushes that and really helps give us an understanding of what our role is 
and what God's role, the Holy Spirit role, uh, Holy Spirit's role is in building and developing the kingdom of God. He says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5 and 7, What after all is Apollos? Apollos was the one who did most of their main teaching and discipling because Paul wasn't physically there with them. What after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed. Apollos watered it. But God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. And you know what? I love the fact that God assumes all of the responsibility here for kingdom growth. He says, you sow the seed, you share the truth, you live out the truth, I take care of the rest. I like that. Sounds like he's taking on most of the responsibility, most of the jobs. And I love that. And he even says you don't have to do everything for what it means to sow the seed. You have a different part. Paul planted it. Apollos made it grow. Or Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. I love the fact that our role in this sometimes hidden growth is simply to watch for harvest and react to it. And you know what? That's exciting to be a part of when there's a harvest in the kingdom of God, right? Um, it is fun when people respond to your invitation. It is fun. It is amazing. It is a rush when people say yes to your request. For those that, for you that are married... Think back to when you proposed to your spouse or when you were proposed to by your spouse. When I proposed to Krista, who was leading worship for us today, I knew I had to do a really good job on this proposal. She's too smart. I had to fool her somehow. And so, if I had have concocted what would be a traditional proposal scene, like say, hey, why don't we go to that place where we met? You know, we had been dating long enough. Or why don't we go to that favorite restaurant that we always go to for special occasions? She would have been on me like that, like flies on peanut butter. She would have understood specifically, oh, you're up to something. I know that. So I had to play it more cool. And for once in my life, I think, I, I think it worked. What I did was, I just said, hey, why don't you come over for, for, for dinner? Uh, we, I can cook some steaks on the barbecue, and you know, we had a, we lived, I lived in a basement apartment at the time. Why don't you come over? We'll hang out. We'll watch a movie, but I'll, I'll cook dinner. And I did that quite often uh, back then when we were dating. And so she said, yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll come. That'll be, that sounds like a fun date. And so I went and got steak, had the engagement ring all ready to go, and the steak was there just in case she said no, so the whole night wouldn't be a total waste. And I thought, how do I give her this ring? It can, I cannot give her a hint that oh, something's coming, something's big. And so we ate dinner, we talked, things, we talked about things, just normal things that happened during the week. And at the dessert time, you know, when you're thinking, let's have some coffee, something. I just said, um, help me, uh, would you like to have some coffee, some tea, a diamond engagement ring? And just slid the box across the table, totally unsuspecting. It totally caught her off guard. It worked out pretty well, I think, in that, in that moment. But in that moment, uh, all I had done was put out the invitation. Would you like this? And implicit in that, of course, is, will you marry me? And everything hinged on her response. And do you know how much control I had after I made that invitation? None. Zero. That was a little too emphatic, but I appreciate that. It's very true. I had zero control, and it was all up to her. And thankfully, she said yes. And that was a thrilling moment when she said yes. And I love that. And that's what God is inviting us into. 
when we get to give an invitation to someone by sharing God's truth with them, by living out God's truth with them, they get to then have a chance to respond and you get a chance to be the one to ask them. You get a chance to ask them. Moms and dads, when you read the Bible stories to your kids before they go to bed, and then they all of a sudden say, I'd like to know more about this Jesus. Doesn't that just like excite you? And you go, of course, let me get my Christian theology book by Wayne Grudem. It's only four volumes and we've got all night. Let's go. You know, you're just so excited that they're saying yes to that response. When you invite people to your growth group or your, your Bible study on Wednesdays and they say, yes, I'll be there. When you invite people to Christmas Sunday service to join you in person, to watch with you online, and they say yes, they'll come, they'll watch with you. When you give someone a Christian book and they read it, and they come back and say, thank you so much for giving me this book. I want to take a next step. I want to move forward. I want to go closer to God. Will you help me be able to do that? And they say yes. When you pray with someone and it changes their life and they come back and tell you how it helped them, how it changed them, how it moved them closer to God, you receive that yes just by giving an invite to pray. When we give an altar call here and people say, I want to respond to that. When we give a baptism announcement and say, we're going to have a baptism in a few weeks and people say, yes, I want to be baptized. I'm blown away. Every time. Because I feel like I didn't really do anything. All I did was make the invitation. Plant a seed. And someone else said yes. And someone else helped them along the way. Now hear me well. Just because God has simply given us the, the simple task of sharing his word, of living out God's word as a light before others, doesn't mean that we can be sloppy about this. Like if I was driving in the car with Krista and I had said, like, yo, we should get married or something, you know? Like that'd be kind of cool. I have a feeling the chances of hearing a yes would have plummeted dramatically, right? Doesn't mean that I didn't try to set up the room. I just didn't want her to catch on. I wanted to completely surprise her. I wanted to do the best I could. And in sharing God's word, in living out God's word with others, in, in serving him in that way, that doesn't mean that we can be sloppy. And it doesn't mean that I don't give effort and that we don't shoot for the best that we can possibly do. It simply means that growth is something that I don't control. And it makes yes so much more exciting, so much more surprising, so much more amazing. So Jesus says, first of all, that kingdom growth happens in a way that we don't see. And it's natural. And the invitation is given by you so that you can be someone who experiences the yes when the yes occurs. However, kingdom growth also happens in a second way. And I wish that we really liked this second way more. But it's really hard to like this second way that Jesus talks about. Is kingdom growth also happens in a second way. It also works in a second way that we don't always appreciate. Because kingdom growth happens in a way that overwhelms. It doesn't just happen in a way that we can't see. It happens in a way that overwhelms the way that we live. Look at verse 30 of Mark chapter 4. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? Uh, it is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. And with many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. 
He did not say anything to them about you without using a parable, but when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. Jesus says that the kingdom work that God does is going to overwhelm everything you are and everything you value. See, the reason why this happens is because sin, when it entered the world, ruined every part of our lives. It ruined every part of us. It ruined every part of our world. And God said, I'm going to fix that. Therefore, when God fixes sin, he fixes everything that sin touched, which is everything. He's fixing us, every part of us. He's fixing the world, every part of the world. And let's face it, if we're truly honest, if God is changing all of that, in our lifetime, uh, that's too much. We feel like that's too much because we are people who don't like change where we do not have control. Jesus uses the example of a mustard seed and a mustard plant. There was a... Um, Greek philosopher, a Roman author and philosopher named uh, Pliny the Elder, who kind of gives us an understanding of how people in Jesus' day thought of mustard seeds and mustard plants. He wrote this, Mustard, with its pungent taste and fiery effect, grows entirely wild, though it is improved by being transplanted. But on the other hand, where it has once been sown, it is scarcely possible to get the place free of it. As the seed, when it falls, germinates as once, at once. What Jesus is saying here is that this plant, this seed that you are planting, is going to take over every part of your life, of my life, of your world, of my world. And we don't like it when someone else starts meddling with our garden. And all we can have is this one thing. We like to keep birds out of the garden, right? We don't want birds eating our flowers. We put fences up to keep wild animals out. We do things to keep animals, birds, wildlife away. And Jesus says, there's a part of this, of this kingdom, that because God controls it, is completely out of your control. It is going to overwhelm, overtake, and over-prioritize, if you will, everything that you think should be a priority. It's just going to overwhelm it. A number of years ago, some friends of mine uh, introduced me to dessert pizza. Have you ever heard of dessert pizza? Is that something that's that's you've heard of? If you haven't heard of dessert pizza, it's basically a pizza crust. It's cold. It's not cooked, but they put a lot of of pieces of fruit on them. Uh, so when my friend made this fruit, there would be pieces of mandarin. There would be pieces of of grapes, and it was it was delicious to have all of these things mixed uh, together. But there was a problem with this dessert pizza that he made. He had cut all of the fruit and all of the toppings that were going to go on this dessert pizza on a cutting board that he had used to cut and press fresh garlic for the main course. And so we were enjoying this pizza, and then all of a sudden we took a bite of one particular fruit or area, and guess what happened? The taste of the garlic just overwhelmed everything including the next few bites. It took a while to get that particular taste out of your mouth. That's what Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is going to do. It is going to be like garlic that overwhelms everything else in the meal that you want to create. 
And automatically, you and I think, well, that's terrible. How come God is doing that? And the reason is because sin has tainted everything. And so God is changing everything. He's changing everything in you. And eventually, He will change everything in creation. A new heaven and a new earth where earth is redeemed and restored and creation is redeemed and restored. Every part is going to be overwhelmed by this kingdom. We don't like it. But the birds that Jesus talks about are unexpected benefactors to what the mustard tree is providing. That they can come and perch in the shade. Have you ever been in a shady spot in the summer heat? You know how much fun it is to be out in the sun where there's no shade in the summer heat? It's awful. You want to get inside. You want to get into some air conditioning. You want to get into something that's comfortable. Things that we did not expect to change because of the change that happened through this mustard plant, are, they're able to benefit. They're able to grow. They're able to experience a blessing. And the same is true with the kingdom of God. The same is true with Christianity. When we allow the kingdom of God to overwhelm our lives, all of culture begins to benefit. And you only need to look at the history of Christianity to see why it has benefited culture in every way. I'm just going to explain a few ways of how Christianity has changed the world. Let's talk about the view of women in the world. Aristotle, a Greek philosopher, uh, who was a little bit before Jesus' time, I believe, said that a woman was somewhere between a free man and a slave in worth. According to the book Reasons for God by Tim Keller, it was extremely common into the, in the Greco-Roman world to throw out new female infants to die from exposure because of the low status of women in society. But it was the church that forbade its members from doing so. Greco-Roman society saw no value in an unmarried woman, and it was, un, it was illegal for a, a widow to go more than two years without remarrying. Christianity was the first religion to not force women to marry. They were supported financially in the church, honored in the community, so that, that they were not experiencing this great pressure to remarry if they didn't want to. If you were a pagan outside of the church and you were a widow, you lost all control of your husband's estates. The church said you can keep control of your husband's estates if he's passed. Christians did not believe in cohabitation, so no Christian man could move in with a widow and take advantage of her. He had to proclaim his unity with her through marriage. Mistresses were forbidden rather than celebrated and honored and practiced and expected. In all of these ways, Christian women, Christian women experienced greater security, greater rights, and greater honor in the church than they did in culture. That's just women. What about children? We talked a little bit about children. Killing a Roman was murder, but it was commonly held in Rome that killing one's own children could be an act of beauty. But it's interesting that then and now, the pro-life movement, life regardless of age, is dominated by those who call themselves followers of Jesus. That's just women. That's just children. Christianity has touched work and the acts of slavery. Christians were the first people to systemically oppose slavery. Early Christians would purchase slaves in the marketplace so that they could set them free. They would take their savings, 
if they had any, they would scrounge together what money they could and they would purchase someone who would be sold on the slave block in order to give them freedom. Now, it's interesting that slavery today was ended predominantly by Christian activists. You only need to look at William Wilberforce, who was the primary force behind the ending of the international slave trade, which was before the American Civil War. William Wilberforce was a British evangelical. Two-thirds of the members of the American Abolition Society in 1835 were Christian ministers. What about economics? How has Christianity affected economics? How about charity, generosity, and philanthropy, where ancient Roman society said that helping someone in need was an act of weakness, that they were being judged by the gods and cursed by the gods. But the Christians had a focus on the worker should earn his wage, and that when it came to debt, it was not just the responsibility of the person in debt, but it was the responsibility of the person who held the debt over a person to enable them to free themselves financially. It was in the ancient Christian context, in the people of God, in the people of Israel, who had every seven years, people would go free from their debts. Sounds like something I would like. And Christians in the New Testament would practice sacrificial generosity to care for their community. It was one of the acts of Christians over and over and over again. They didn't stockpile riches for themselves, but they readily, willingly gave it away to those in need. Christianity's not only had an effect that's benefited women, that's benefited children, that's benefited uh, slavery and work, that's benefited economics, it's benefited education. There was no education for the masses until the Protestant Revolution. And it was because of the Protestant Revolution and the printing of the Bible that there was a desire that rose among, Christi among Christians and in Christianity to teach people how to read so that they could possess a copy of the Bible for themselves and pursue a relationship with God for themselves. Many of the world's first languages were set to writing by Christian missionaries who wanted to make sure that they had a copy of the Bible in their own language. Only one out of 123 American educational institutions that started here in the era of the colonies was not based on faith. Now, all of these schools have certainly moved on and lost their Christian identities. But it's interesting to read their founding statements, like the one of Harvard, where we hear that, let, where they say that Harvard was founded on this statement. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies, which is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. The purpose of education was to further people's faith not to further people's economics, not to further people's standard of livings, because if their faith was improved through education, their standard of living would improve. And there's no greater place that we see this in world history than in healthcare. There would be no modern healthcare like we have today without Christianity. Hospice care was invented, developed, by Christians. At the time, uh, Greco-Roman society had some kind of hospice care. If you were seriously wounded for the state, you know, soldiers and politics, but if you were poor, if you had a, uh, a disease that you were, it was chronic, or you were chronically ill and going to die, there was no hope for you because you were being judged by the gods. And Christians rushed in and said, we are going to take a holistic approach to you and care for you like lepers. And we will develop places for you to be cared for and looked after. If you have a chronic illness, if you are at the end of life, you are going to be valued, not disposed of. It was Thomas Percival, a devout Christian and a social reformer who was a physician who drew up the first professional code of ethics for modern medicine. 
Christianity is touched. The lives of women. The value of women and children. Slavery. Economics. Work. Education. And medicine. That is the difference that Christianity has made. And let's face it. It's not that Christianity has been fully successful in every way, in every opportunity, in every option that they've had. We've made some mistakes. We have some black eyes. If you just have to read through the history of the Dark Ages to see a little bit of that. Look at the Crusades. Don't even go back as far and look at how the church abandoned the civil rights movement. But what's the other option? Find something better in history that has changed culture better than Christianity. In every way, in every part of culture, you can't find it. As a matter of fact, you just need to look around where you see where Christianity has been absent and you see horrific, horrific acts of violence. Consider the regimes of of Hitler, of Mao, of Stalin, of Pol Pot, or any dictator who lives in the world today. You go to those areas of the world when they were uh, running their countries and you find atheistic bloodbaths. The 20th century alone, those dictators account for well over 100 million murders. The evidence is so strong that when the restraining influence of Christianity has been removed from a country or culture, unmitigated disaster will naturally follow. Which is what Jesus said about us being salt and light. We're not a flavor agent. We are a preserving agent to culture. Pull Christians out of the culture and the ravages of sin which lead to death accelerate faster and faster and faster. It is Christianity that changes the world and societies for the better. know that we look at change and we think, I don't want to change. But with God, all of the things that he wants to change are good changes. And he knows that everything needs to change. And you and I, through simply sowing the truth of his word, through living out the truth of his word, and letting that light shine, get to be a part of that change. We get to see it. We get to see people respond and say yes. And we get to see all of the world be better for everyone because of what God is doing as he builds his kingdom. God's kingdom growth will be overwhelming. And friends, that's a good thing. I think the challenge is that we want the kingdom of God, but we want it on our terms. That has to change. We can't be Christians and come to God with a prenuptial agreement and say, I love you and I'll serve you and follow you, but here are my conditions. Here's the things that are hands off. You can't have these kinds of things. That's not love. That's a business contract. And the change that God wants to bring in us and through us cannot be limited by that. Like Paul, we need to recognize that the Christian life is not about building our kingdom. We aren't anything in light of the work that God is doing. Because the Christian life is about building a kingdom where we are not the king. We're not. And if we would think of our lives more where we lived in a kingdom, where we are not king, I think Christianity reengages that idea of living for this purpose, of shining God's light, of sharing God's truth with others above all other things that can become idols to us when we put them before sharing God's word, living out God's word, 
and our relationship with Jesus in front of others. I think we need to return to that time when Paul would say that your king is not an evil king. He can only do good. And if God, this king, has his way with the world in the same way that he's had with you, it's only going to produce good in the world in the same way that it's produced good in you. Yes, the process of change is faithful. But God's kingdom goodness is worth it. Since God's kingdom overwhelms and overtakes all areas of life. Would you be willing to say today, God's kingdom can overtake and overwhelm your life. Some questions for you as we close. You'll be able to think about them, journal about them, talk about them this week in your growth group. Um, Question one. Where do I see God's kingdom changing the world? Where do I see it? Reality is, if we turn on the news, we're not going to see that. We need different sources of information. What you consume is what you will live for. So may I make a suggestion that you begin to pursue news of what God is doing in a much larger scale than you directly can control or impact. great resource that you can use for that is Alliance Life. Alliance Life is a free publication by the Christian and Missionary Alliance that you can sign up for and receive every couple of months that has a number of devotional, inspirational things, but also what God is doing around the world in places like Africa where Christian and Missionary Alliance workers are helping to provide food and water in a way that can excite you to help you see that God is really doing something that is otherwise hidden to you. We have the ability to help you know that. So where can you find out information where God's kingdom is changing the world? You have to go beyond Facebook, beyond social media. Sign up for some different newsletters from some different Christian organizations, Christian Missionary Alliance, Crosstalk Global, this church even, to find out what God is doing so that your eyes can be opened and that you can be encouraged by the things that you don't normally see if you're not looking for them. And secondly, the second question is this, where do I see God's kingdom changing my world? This can be so challenging for us to process, so I want to recommend a second resource to you. Uh, It's a book, an older book that was written a number of years ago, decades ago, Um, I can't remember the author's name, uh, but the title of the book is My Heart, Christ's Home. Uh, My Heart, Christ's Home was written from the perspective of your life, of my life, being like a house. And all of the rooms of the house, bedroom, kitchen, living room, den, closet, all of those things, are areas of our lives that we can then process and think, does Jesus have the ability to walk into those rooms and give it a healthy makeover? Or are there things that we're hiding in those rooms, things that we'd be embarrassed for him to know, for him to see, for us to show him that we go, actually, Jesus, we'd rather you stay out of this room for this moment. It's a helpful, helpful guide to process this question. My heart, Christ's home. So that we can clearly answer, where do I see God's kingdom changing my world? God's kingdom growth isn't always easy to see, but it is happening. And the change that God wants to make is going to be overwhelming. And that is the best thing ever. Let me pray. Jesus, in this moment, I pray that you would be with every person that's here, every person that's watching and participating online. And I ask, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to speak to them. Lord, would you help us to process and wrestle honestly with whether we are letting your kingdom and the work that you are doing overwhelm and overtake 
our lives as what you want to do in all of culture. You want to make a new creation. You want to do that in us. You want to do that through us. And so, Lord, for those who have committed their lives to you, would you allow this to be a day where that flag is again planted in the ground that says, yes, I will live for you and your kingdom purposes above all else because the kingdom that you are making is better than all else. And for Lord, for those that are listening who have never surrendered their lives to you, I pray, Lord, that you would allow them a moment just to experience your love and your grace and forgiveness and allow them to to pray this prayer as you lead them. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have offended you. But I believe that you love me so much and you love me so much that you sent your son Jesus to pay the penalty for my sins by dying in my place. And that by rising from the dead, you have offered us, offered me eternal life. And I choose to believe. I choose to follow in faith. I surrender to your salvation. And I receive that gift. And I choose to follow you today. With every eye still closed and head bowed, both here and online, I ask if, um, if you prayed that prayer just now, would you indicate in chat that you did that or raise your hand? God's kingdom growth is changing everything and that is such a good thing and we get to be a part of that to experience the yes. We surrender to your good kingdom work and ask that it would overwhelm and overtake our lives setting our priorities in new ways this Christmas season and leading into 2021 for the rest of our days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.